Hello, and welcome to the Urban Permaculture Podcast. My name's Heather with Hogs and Hens Urban Forum, and I am a little late this week on getting our episode posted, and I apologize for that. We've been traveling, and it is really hard to record quality sound in our really loud, rattly vans that we use for work, and we've been from Louisiana to Alabama and back home. We were supposed to go to Massachusetts. It was just crazy. So rather than giving you a poor quality audio, we decided to wait a couple days and get it, um, get the episode recorded when I could make sure that you guys could have my undivided, quiet background attention. That doesn't mean that the dogs won't take off at some point and make noise as they like to do, but it should be otherwise quiet and easy for you guys to hear. <clears throat> So today, I want to start out by talking about some updates here on our farm. I'm really excited because we've got a bunch of seedlings that are doing great, and we did have a few failures in our seedlings. They were 100% my fault, let's be honest here. Um, So we have all kinds of great things that are, are popping up and are doing great, and our seedlings are doing well. Unfortunately, my uh, bachelor's buttons got a little too dry and that's my fault. I do bottom water them. Uh, but unfortunately when I was watering before we left for our trip, I must've missed that particular, uh, group of seedlings. And so when I came home, they had all just shriveled up and dried up and are not doing well. I do not think they're going to recover. So I'm just going to have to start a uh, brand new batch of those, which is not a big deal. Um, it happens and you know, a, a lot of, of gardening shows, they only show you all the successes and you think, gosh, I wish I could be that perfect. I have news for you. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. I'm just really willing and open about sharing when I make these kind of mistakes. Um, in fact, we have some, um, houseplants that had gotten a little neglected and I'll be honest, I really thought I had totally killed them as well. Um, they're one of Bob's favorites at that. And unfortunately they both got really crispy because I missed them in my watering schedule. And I've got a few leaves that have popped back up that are doing well and are green. So I think they may be salvageable, but otherwise our wandering Jews are pretty crispy crittered. (laughs) Um, As far as plants that I'm super excited about this year um, that we're adding to our farm, I have some black elderberry cuttings that I got from Lone Pine Farmstead that we spoke with a couple of weeks ago, and um, I got 10 cuttings of those from Sarah Michelle with Lone Pine Farmstead, and they are doing great. Um, So currently, they kind of look just like some sticks in, um, in dirt, but... The top nodes are starting to put on just a little tiny bud of green that is starting to open up a little bit more. So that's a good sign that there is life in them. And I don't see any signs of rot at the base where they are um, in the soil. So that's a good sign. And hopefully that means that they are developing a nice strong root structure. Now it's super important when you are doing these cuttings to follow the instructions that come with the cuttings. Um, if, If you've purchased cuttings, And I'm super excited, and it's really cool that when you purchase cuttings from Lone Pine Farmstead, um, Sarah Michelle does give you a little printout with instructions for exactly what to do with your cuttings. Uh, The most important thing being not to let them dry out. If they dry out, unfortunately, they will die. But we've done a really good job of making sure that they are 
um, good and, and damp. And if all goes well, these will be ready to go into the ground in midsummer once they've developed a really good root system. Um, it needs to get partial sun. Um, ideally, it'll get morning sun. And it does need plenty of water. Um, so right now they're hanging out in a pot and just getting regularly watered. And hopefully we have 10 brand new plants to put out into our food forest this year. Elderberries are such an incredible addition. I talked about them on our berry episode recently. And... Um, they are definitely by far one of my most exciting new babies. I also got some Egyptian walking onions from Sarah Michelle at Lone Pine Farmstead. And if you're not familiar with them, they are some of the coolest plants. They are a perennial onion. Um, now, how that works, technically, I guess they're not really a perennial in that the original plant does indeed get harvested and eaten. But they will absolutely spread and propagate themselves with absolutely no input from you. They're called walking onions because what happens is the original bulb, when planted in the ground, will send up a tall green shoot, just like every other onion or allium family member. And then instead of putting on a big flower at the top of the, um, of the green shoot, it's going to put on what are called bulbets. It's going to put a little topper with um, several little tiny baby onion sets at the very top of it. And then those onions are going to eventually get heavy and they are going to bend with the weight of themselves. <laughs> you can hear the puppies in the background saying, hello, Bob just came down the stairs. Um, so those onions then will bend over and once that weight hits the ground and they're all nice and toasty, they will go ahead and start rooting themselves and planting themselves. And then that green piece that connected them to the bulbette from the main um, stem is going to die and those little baby bulbettes are going to take off and grow and that's how these onions walk. So they're going to go from where they were attached to their mother plant to a new spot and you'll have, you know, six to eight, up to 10, um, brand new little walking onions that will be planted there. And they will just continue to do that over and over. Now with that in mind, they can go anywhere. So wherever the bulbets land is going to be where they're planted. You can also wait until they bend into the ground like that, nip them from their mother plant, and then put them where you'd like, which allows you to have a little bit mo more control over, you know, where they end up living. But if you just let them go wild, they're an awesome plant for your permaculture food forest, even in the city, because they will just continue to grow and grow and grow and multiply. So in our household, we use tons of onions. So we're super excited about these because once you get them established, you don't really need very many plants at all to get an established colony and they will just take off and grow and multiply. So that's another plant we're super excited about. We also have a forsythia plant, and I'm super excited about that because the forsythia is known um, in my family as the weather plant. So if you see a forsythia bush blooming in my family, when you see a bright yellow um, bush covered in flowers, that's forsythia. In my family, we've always known that that means that it means there's going to be one more snow or killing frost. Now, other people I know will say that it means there are three more snows ahead, but We've always known it to mean there's only one more ahead. So I suppose I'll track the uh, the history of that and see if I can get more information on that. And I'm going to be tracking my forsythia and seeing 
after it blooms, do I get one more snow or are there three? We'll see and only time will tell for sure. It's the great thing about keeping a garden journal is you can keep all of those notes year over year and you can really start to build evidence that no longer becomes anecdotal evidence but becomes your own observations based on your microclimate and the microclimate where that particular plant is being um, planted. Um, some other updates on our farm. We were able to get our um, our beds started. So if you if you are in the Facebook group or if you follow our Facebook page, rather, it's not a group, it's a like page. But if you follow our page on Facebook, Hogs and Hens Urban Farm, you'll see I posted a picture recently of the garden and we've got four of the dedicated beds planted out. We're really excited about them. We planted some of our shelling peas as well as some of our snap peas and snow peas. Got them um, put along the trellis that Bob built for it. And we also planted radishes. Now this year we're growing a variety of different kinds of radish. We love to eat them fresh. They're also amazing and delicious to have them roasted. Um, I've got some regular, you know, round red and white radishes that you would traditionally see in a store. But I also have some icicle radishes that I'm super excited to grow. Now these are a tapered, long taproot style radish. They're going to look more like a parsnip or a carrot shape-wise, and they are bright white. So I'm very excited to see if we can get those to take off this year, and I'm dying to try them. I've never tasted them, so I don't know what to expect yet. But the great thing about radishes they are super, super cold tolerant. Um, they can handle temperatures in the low 20s all the way down to the teens. And they only have about a 25 to 35 day window before you can harvest them. So we put them in the ground um, early last year, this, this week rather. And in the mid to end of April, I'll have radishes that we'll be able to harvest already. So it's a great way for us to do some succession planting with those. And they're an amazing crop to use for snacking, slicing, or roasting. And so we, once we get these ones to uh, sprout and start to come up a little bit, I'll go ahead and get my next round of radishes in so that we have a perpetual flow of radishes in our garden. We also planted out a ton of beets. So beets are one of my absolute favorite vegetables. And this year I'm super excited because I'm growing some golden beets. So golden beets at uh, the stores around here are actually quite pricey. Um, they're usually you get three beets roots with beet greens on them at our local market and you're going to pay like $4 for just three little beets and they're not very large, um, when you buy them from there but they're delicious. Um, to me, they have a little less of an earthy flavor. And when they roast, they have a little bit more of a natural sweetness. So they are some of my absolute favorite veggies for roasting. Now, I like traditional red beets. Um, and the beets I planted are a Detroit red. Um, so they're a deep, dark red beet. And a lot of people just eat the, uh, the beet root, which is the most common part of the plant, you know, that people harvest and eat. But I actually like to cook the beet greens as well. They are fantastic to saute up. You can add them to soups, stews, and stir fries to add a ton of nutrition um, to your meals without adding a bunch of bulk. Um, and they are loaded with iron and all kinds of delicious vitamins. 
So beets are unique because when you plant them, the individual seed pods actually have more than one plant um, inside. So you'll usually get three plants that'll sprout from one single seed. And then when they actually pop up, you just kind of have to, um, I use uh, shears and I get down really close to them um, and I'll cut off the weakest of the um sprouts basically because you want one to focus on growth otherwise they kind of crowd each other out and you'll get deformed beets or they'll be overcrowded and they'll be competing each other for nutrition and it just doesn't give you as strong a harvest as you could otherwise have but we split that bed up into um, red beets and then golden beets and I cannot wait for those I love to use beets um, I, I will pickle them and do pickled beets. I like to use them and make pickled eggs and beets. I love to roast them. Um, so I'll either chunk them up or even just cut them into like quarters and toss them in a little olive oil and roast them. And they are fantastic to add to smoothies. And if you're into juicing, they are a fantastic addition to a lot of your juicing recipes. They're just a fantastic powerhouse. And again, beets are another one of those crops that can do well and can grow all the way into the low 20s to teens. Um, so that's exciting. We also planted out a bunch of our greens. And I am I'm really excited about that as well. I am so ready to have some fresh salad greens straight from my garden uh, that we can add to our salads and that we can, you know, saute up in the case of the spinach or cook down in the case of our collards and, and uh, turnip greens. And so that's going to be happening soon, as well as some of our kale has gotten planted. So we planted, uh, I think, four different varieties of lettuce. We also planted collard greens and kale, as well as uh, we planted some kohlrabi over with our beets. And so that's pretty exciting. So those are some things that are going on in our garden right now. Um, we also have decided that in addition to the chickens, we are going to be adding two more types of animal to our farm. So we are going to be adding quail this year, which we are so excited about. Um, they are just the cutest little birds. And quail are really, really inexpensive to raise um, compared to others. They are very small, tiny birds. A lot of uh, cities have regulations regarding chickens, but a lot of times you can get around that a little bit um, by raising quail because quail are not chickens. They are um, a much smaller animal, and if they're not expressly prohibited, then oftentimes you can raise quail in the city, and we are absolutely taking advantage of that option. Um, now, I am not encouraging you to try to you know, find loopholes in the law or break the law by any means. But I'm saying that you could definitely check into your local uh, regulations and there's a really good chance you can grow quail. Quail do not take up a lot of space at all. They, in fact, they do better in smaller spaces. So quail like to kind of gather together and huddle up together for warmth. Um, much like chickens, they don't really need to be um, heated. They will keep themselves plenty warm. They've got plenty of insulation with their feathers and their huddling um, tendencies to keep them warm typically. 
but they do need um, some circulation in the summer. They do not like to be super, super hot. Um, they are more prone to dying from heat than they are from cold. It's important that they always have access to fresh water and that they have a dust bath. Um, we're going to be using sand probably for that. And then, um, you know, that they have a clean location as with all livestock. The other thing that we're going to be adding to our homestead are meat rabbits. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. Uh, we haven't decided for sure which variety we're going with. Probably going to go with some New Zealand rabbits. Um, they are able to be um, butchered at 10 to 12 weeks. You actually don't want to grow them super huge because they, they just start eating more food and they stop gaining weight at about that point. Um, you do not have to wait for them to breed before you're able to cull them and harvest that meat. And so that makes them a super awesome um, critter to add. Again, our city does not have regulations regarding rabbits. So we're going to be growing the rabbits as well as our chicken and quail. Uh, we can't have goats, sheep, or any other kind of grazing animals um, in our city. So that means no goats, sheep, cow, or anything like that. No horses, donkeys, or mules. But that's okay. Um, unfortunately, I also cannot have an alpaca or a llama, which makes me sad. Um, Bob and I joke about it all the time because I always tease him that I really want to get some alpacas or llamas. But unfortunately, my city code says I can't have that. So we are, um, we are going to go ahead and have rabbits, quail, and chicken. Uh, the rabbits, one of the awesome benefits about rabbits, so rabbit manure is immediately able to be used in the garden. It is a cold manure. So what that means, um, when you when you harvest manure from things like chickens, cows, horses, other animals, you have to age it. So it needs to sit and be composted and regularly turned and make sure that you process it for a good amount of time, ideally six months to a year before you actually put it into your garden because you want to remove a lot of the um, ammonia and the urine that gets mixed in with the bedding and the manure and also to prevent any kind of pathogens from getting spread um, into your field. It also allows any kind of um, seeds like wheat seeds or hay seeds or even weed seeds that have passed through the animal's digestive system. It gives it time for those to break down and be composted so that you don't end up accidentally planting an entire garden full of, you know, weed seeds that have passed through the horse's digestive system. With rabbit manure, you don't have to do that. It's a cold compost, meaning you can plant it right in your garden. And the great thing about rabbits, they reproduce like crazy. They reproduce like, well, rabbits. And so you will have a perpetual cycle of rabbits as long as you have a variety of bucks and does. You can make sure that you're um, breeding them with different, uh, you know, different bucks and does at different times so that you, um, you know, can have fresh DNA strands and fresh, um, you know, lines in your animals. And it allows you to have a perpetual cycle of meat animals. So that's really exciting um, because we'll have yet another source of delicious, not delicious, <laughs> nutritious, gosh, delicious, that's disgusting, nutritious compost to add to your gardens to ensure a really successful harvest. So we'll have that. Um, rabbits are a low, uh, low cost for food. Um, you can feed them pellets, pelletized food, um, but they also... 
do really great on um, fresh vegetables from your garden. You can give them the occasional treat. They love blueberries. That would be a really special treat if you want to occasionally give them um, treats or even a little slice of banana from time to time. But honestly, rabbits don't need a ton of sweets. They really don't. Um, if you give them plenty of, you know, leafy vegetables and produce from your garden, you can give them, you know, the tops from your carrots, you can give them actual carrots, you can give them all kinds of things. Just make sure that you're giving them fresh, organic, non-GMO food that is free of any kinds of chemicals so that you are making sure that your meat is not tainted with those things either, nor is the manure. So that's kind of some of the updates of what's going on here at the homestead. Uh, we're adding those things to our garden. But today's episode is going to focus on cool season crops and what you can plant in your garden right now in Garden Zone 6A, which is where we are at. Um, I'm going to talk about some tips for winter sowing or I guess spring sowing at this point um, and give you some examples of veggies that you can plant now as well as some tips for keeping them healthy. Um, so first of all, um, yes, it is March and we have planted a bunch of things outside, including direct sown things. That normally sounds like a scary thing given that our last frost day is April 25th, roughly. Um, usually I try to wait until the, the beginning of May. Mother's Day has always been a rule of thumb around my family for when it's safe to plant um, your, your veggies and things that are not cold hardy. But April 25th is the official date um, for, for our growing zone. That in mind, we planted things at the end of March, a full month before our last frost date, which does indeed mean that we very well could end up with another cold snap or some snow or things like that. But I'm going to explain to you why I'm not even remotely worried about those things. So for one, as long as it is moist, um, the ground is really moist, it's humid outside, there's rain or snow happening, it really helps those plants because that humidity helps retain um, some of the, the moisture adds heat or warmth to the plants. It's going to help them to be stronger. Um, I make sure that any transplants that I am planting, I harden off. Now, if you're not familiar with the hardening off process, what that means so I'm planting all these vegetables inside my house, which is a constant 69 to 72 degrees, depending on uh, the temperature outside. Um, we do we do tend to keep our house closer to like the 70 range, um, but either way, it's 70 degrees in my house. My plants also have these beautiful bright lights on them, giving them plenty of you know sunlight. But when I put them outside in the ground suddenly it's no longer 70 degrees. Suddenly they don't have this super bright light six to eight inches away from the tops of their greens. And so if, if you don't harden them off and gradually get them acclimated to the outside natural conditions, then you can put the plants into a state of shock, which can cause them to either die or it can actually cause them to bolt or any other number of adverse things. It, it makes them more susceptible to diseases and it just makes them weak. So what we do, we have a tray that we um, have outside. It was green, our greenhouse, but unfortunately this winter we got some really, really bad windstorms and it shredded our greenhouse. So currently there's no plastic on the outside of our greenhouse or, or any kind of film. So it is currently just the frame of a greenhouse with shelves. 
But what we'll do is we take the um, seedlings that are in the house and I put them out on the trays um, in the greenhouse uh, or a shell of the greenhouse, I guess, and let them get acclimated for a few hours at a time every day for about a week or two. And every day you give them a little bit more time. Now, some things that are really important to keep in mind when hardening off your plants. Do not, and I do repeat, do not put them in direct sunlight because you will absolutely cook them. So remember, these babies are used to artificial light or a little bit of light that has been filtered through windows and things. And whether you realize it or not, windows typically have a little bit of a UV protectant built into them, especially if they're newer windows. They are designed to filter out some of those harmful UV rays that are not good for, um, you know, humans um, and that can bleach out things like carpet or flooring if the light constantly trickles through. So these windows oftentimes have this, this filter on them. So plants aren't getting what they're going to get outside and they might have fans on them, which is great. They should, but they're not getting actual wind and they're not getting actual rain. So they need to get acclimated to that slowly and gradually so they can get used to it. Once you get them acclimated, you can plant them outside and they will do great. But if you do take a week or two to slowly increase the amount of time, start out with like an hour or two outside and then, you know, the next day do two to three hours, three to four hours, etc. Until you get them to the point where you can leave them outside most of the day. Um, and even you can try leaving them out overnight if you're, if you really feel, um, like it's a good idea in your area, depending on weather. But once you've got those hardened off, they can go right into the ground. Now I recommend having frost blankets on hand, um, to protect them. Um, it'll protect them down to about 22 degrees. So if you have some that are a little bit more sensitive, you can cover them with frost cloth and it will keep them warm. It's like tucking them in with a nice little blankie. Um, you're just going to use um, some kind of a hoop. Honestly, you can use a hula hoop cut in half if, if that's what you got. And you can then throw this, this fabric over top of it. You use um, little... Um, U-shaped stakes and you kind of just tuck the edges of the fabric down and that will create a little tiny mini almost greenhouse for them. Um, you can use plastic um, or you can even use like a glass cloche um, which is like an enclosed tiny little dome that you create an artificial greenhouse on top of the plants with them. The only thing I would caution you with on doing that is that when you use the plastic it can create quite a greenhouse effect, which can cause more warmth than you want in there, which can cook your plants. And it can also cause them to bolt faster because they think, oh no, it's getting warm out. They get stressed and then they bolt. So the frost blanket or fleece blanket or frost fleece is definitely the way to go. In my opinion, um, the 1.2 ounce is a pretty standard for my climate. And like I said, that'll protect them all the way down to 22 degrees outside with the fabric. You also don't have to take it off. So if you've got a, a you know, a stretch of time where it's going to be cold for a couple days, all of a sudden you can leave it on and they'll still get light filtered through it. They'll also still get a little bit of rain filtering through there. So it's safe to leave on. Whereas if you've got the plastic on there, you're going to need to pull it off again so that they don't overheat in there and so that they can still get some of that moisture.
Another thing you can do to, to protect your baby plants is to mulch heavy. Now, I always recommend that you mulch heavy anyway because truly it is one of the best things you can do for your plants aside from adding some organic compost. So what I mean by mulching heavy, you can use leaves, you can use straw, you can use shredded paper, really any organic matter can be shredded up. You can use a chop and drop. So if you have, um, you know, some leaves that have fallen that you didn't get raked up, you can just tuck those right underneath there. They don't even have to be shredded. But what you'll do is you'll get your seedlings planted. And if you know you're going to have some, some cold weather, you can literally just kind of bury them in a light mulch. Um, like things like straw or leaves are going to be soft material. They're going to create a nice little pocket of warmth around your baby's seedlings, but your seedlings are going to be strong enough to grow through them. So when they feel like it's fine to grow, they're going to just go for it. They're also going to constantly be seeking light. So they're going to be wanting to grow through that mulch and it's going to protect them naturally without having to get out the stakes and the hoops and the frost fleece. Um, so it gives you a way to add some uh, protection to those baby plants. Now, I talked about cloches before. Um, so a cloche is a glass or plastic container that creates a small domed greenhouse. So imagine if you took a greenhouse structure, took the bottom off, and were able to lift it up and just drop it over top of things like a dome, like a uh, like a, a dome. What it does is it insulates and protects those little baby seedlings and gives them a tiny little bitty greenhouse for them to grow in. Now, cloches can come in all sizes, and they don't have to be fancy little things that are designated as a cloche. You can also take some recycled two-liter pop bottles um, or soda bottles, if you're not from Ohio, and cut the bottom part off and take the lid off. And just simply stick them over top of your individual plants. It'll still allow water to get in, but it creates a little dome of protection around the individual plants. That works out great if you have a fairly small garden or a few potted plants. But if you have a really large area that you are growing in, it would definitely be a tedious process to put individual pop containers or pop bottles or soda bottles on top of each and every one of them. The other thing you have to be careful with when using them is that they can blow away if you have high winds. And lately, we have had a ton of high winds, so that has not been a viable option for me lately. But you can also take um, one of those U-shaped stakes, poke a little hole at the bottom of your um, soda bottle cloche, and use that to stake it down to hold it tight. Um, and that's also a way that you can protect them. You can also run um, a thin piece of bamboo or a dowel rod down the hole of the pot bottle and stake it diagonally as a way to kind of hold the bottle in place. That's definitely another option for it. Now, um, some plants that will do well in the upper 20s even outside uh, would be some mature heads of lettuce. So if you started your lettuce indoors and it's doing pretty well and you've got it outside and it's starting to get to that maturity stage where you're nearing harvest, it'll do well up into the 20s. Um, bulb fennel um, will do great into the upper 20s. So you can get your fennel planted and out even when it's in the upper 20s. Likewise with cauliflower, you can put it out when it's in the upper 20s and it'll do great. Um, the mid-20s are perfect for things like um, Swiss chard or rainbow chard. 
broccoli, broccolini, um, cabbage, and that can include things like pak choy and bok choy, as well as head cabbages and all varieties of peas. So by that, I mean shelling peas, which are the kinds where you only eat the individual peas themselves, or you can do um, pod peas or snap peas, um, things like snow peas, um, the kind that you can eat the uh, shell as well. All of those will do great. Um, just remember when you're planting peas that they are very much a plant that requires a trellis or a growing structure. Um, at this time, it is not safe to plant corn or squash. So you can't use peas at this stage to do the three sisters of planting your corn and squash and peas because the corn and the squash are not cold tolerant. They do need warmth. But as long as you have some kind of a trellising structure for your peas, you're good to go. Now, in our case, we used um, just some rolled wire fence that we had left over from an old project. And then Bob had some two by threes that he ripped down and made um, one by basically one and a half and made kind of stakes at the ends for those. And we wrapped the fence around the edge of that. And then we put a piece of that one by three at the very top to create a little more stability in the middle section, I suppose. And then we just planted our peas right along the um, line on that on both sides of the panel, right down the middle of the line. Again, you can go to our Facebook page, um, Hogs and Hens Urban Farm, and see some pictures that'll depict that. And, you know, your peas can take off. <clears throat> But the ones that are going to maybe amaze you are the plants that can go out now um, and survive in the very low 20s all the way down to the teens. Um, so we talked about the beets already. That's obviously one that can go um, down into the teens even. That also includes rutabagas, kohlrabi, mustard, turnips, radishes, kale, um, carrots, onions, garlic, um, all of the allium family. Endive, um, parsley, cilantro, um, let's see, you can do collard greens, um, lettuce from seeds. So you can put um, any kind of lettuce pretty much out as a seedling and it'll do well into the low 20s and teens. Believe it or not, baby lettuce, so when it's just sprouting up and when it's a baby before it reaches maturity actually has more cold tolerance than it does when it gets um, more mature. Like we talked about earlier, mature lettuce, um, especially mature head lettuce, has to be in the upper 20s. Um, but seedlings can handle low 20s all the way down to the teens. Um, spinach, actually spinach does really well in very cold weather. You can even plant some spinach seeds in the late fall and overwinter them and as soon as the ground thaws out enough that spinach will start taking off on its own it'll actually start sprouting up so that's pretty amazing um i had done that not this year but last year i planted some spinach seeds in uh was it september or october i got them planted um late and i was hoping to get some spinach out of it that season and then we got a bunch of rain and a bunch of cold and they just didn't take off and i thought it was a wash I, you know, it was an experiment and I wasn't too worried about it, but sure enough, we actually had some spinach that popped up at the very beginning of last spring. So, um, that's something that I was able to do. Arugula or rocket 
uh, will also do really well in the super low temperatures of the low 20s and teens. Um, so those are all things that you can get planted right now if you are in a zone 6A and above. Um, if you are in a below a zone 6A, if you are in the 5, 4, 3, 2, etc. regions, then you may need to wait a little bit longer, but you shouldn't be very far off. Um, so the next things we're going to be doing, we're going to be um, getting the rest of these seedlings all planted. We're probably going to plant them Sunday because it is raining today. Um, so unfortunately, it's not good weather for planting when you're standing outside sopping wet. But we're going to get the rest of our seedlings that are able to go in the ground out there. And then we're going to go ahead and get our next batch of seedlings started. So we're going to get a bunch of our warm season crops started so that we've got some nice, strong seedlings to get growing. We also need to pot up some of our tomatoes um, and get them fertilized. Now, there's a lot of um, you know differing opinions as far as fertilization on your seedlings. I personally do not add fertilizer to my seeds when I am starting them. My seed starting mix is completely neutral. There, are, there is no nutrition in it. Um, it is a very basic mix that is designed for simply um, keeping the seedlings moist. And um, that's really all it is. It's a mix of coconut coir as well as um, some you know, some plain soil and some perlite and uh, vermiculite. That's about it. I, I don't add a bunch of crazy stuff. Um, if I have some mycorrhizal, I'll, I'll throw that in there. Um, but, I, you know, I don't right now, so I didn't add any of that. But once my plants are to a stage where they are pretty well poking roots um, out of the bottoms of their existing containers or um, in the case where I'm currently I'm using the um, little dried pucks because I got a really good deal on them. Um, when they start to have roots that I can see sticking out the sides of those vessels, I know it's time to get them potted up. And when I pop them up, then I will add some supplemental nutrition and some fertilizer. But even then, it's really important to make sure you're using a very well diluted fertilizer because they are still tender young seedlings. You don't want to overdo it with the fertilizer or you can basically chemical burn your baby plants and you surely don't want to do that. So I will be adding some of that soon. Um, I just use a balanced NPK ratio, which is nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Um, so those, when you're, when you're shopping or looking at um, fertilizers, you'll often see numbers on a bag. It'll either just have three numbers listed side by side by side, or it'll say NPK and it'll have the number corresponding to it. But if it's just numbers, it'll always be nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium in that order. Um, you want a good balanced mix for the seedlings. Later on, you can adjust based on the plant type and, you know, increase if they need more nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium, depending, you know, depending on the plant. But for now, the, the balance is just peachy. Um, so I'll be doing that as well this week. And we are going to be getting um, things started for our animal enclosures because the first thing you got to do before you can uh, get quail or rabbits is to have a 
place for them to live. Um, now that's of course the second thing, because the first thing really is to do a ton of research. You really need to do research before you get started on any kind of animals. Um, you want to make sure that you understand their, you know, what living conditions they require. You want to check with your local regulations and make sure you're allowed to have them because nothing is more heartbreaking than spending all the time, money, and effort in getting them and then finding out from your city that you have to get rid of them. This is often the case with, uh, those that live in an area where there's a homeowners association. Um, now, quail can be a little bit noisy depending on um, you know where they're at and their conditions. So, you know, be beware of that um, because you know you don't want to have neighbors complaining. In our area, if we have more than one complaint from more than one location, so if two different neighbors complain about the noise of my quail then the city could step in and tell me I have to get rid of them. So I want to be really conscious of that and put them somewhere where the sound's not going to travel so much from them because they coo and they make noises as all animals do. And I don't want to irritate my neighbors, not only because I don't want to get rid of my animals, but also just because, you know, they're your neighbors. They live there too. And if you're going to live next to somebody, you really want to keep it, you know, on good terms when you can. Um, We've also found that if you, you know, leave goodie baskets of fresh produce or eggs on their front porch with a, a note, thank you for tolerating our animals, it tends to go a long way. So there's that to bear in mind as well. Um, now, we are not allowed to have roosters at our homestead, but there are no rules regarding male or female um you know, as far as the quail or the rabbits. So we will have bucks and does on the rabbits. And again, with the, the quail, we'll have all types of um, quail too. So that's what's going on in our homestead. That's the things that I wanted to let you guys know about as far as getting your cool season crops rolling. Um, you know, now the list that I went over, those are not exclusive lists. There are other things that you can absolutely plant. Those are just the ones that we grow here on the farm. So those are the things that we wanted to share. I hope your garden grows beautifully. And if you like what you're hearing, please, please, please make sure that you give us a review on whatever um, app you're using to listen to our podcast. If you want more information, definitely check out our Facebook page, uh, Hogs and Hens Urban Farm. And for blog articles and show notes, you can check us out at hogsandhensdayton.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will talk to you soon. Have a great day.